As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. By design to prevent abuse, it's not easy to just switch your prescription to a different pharmacy. And you only get enough Suboxone to last you until you're supposed to refill that next prescription. You'll get turned away if you try to refill too early. So when someone like Tina has to wait five days for her medication, she was questioning whether she was in a physical condition to be able to drive to the pharmacy because her withdrawal symptoms were so bad. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We are investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On this episode, your doctor says you need a medication, but when you go to pick it up, you get turned away. Our investigation into the delicate balance of treatment and oversight. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Polson here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Hello. And Jenna Sachs. Hi there. Chances are you've taken prescribed medicine at some point. Now, most of us don't think twice about showing up at the pharmacy to pick up that prescription. But doctors, counselors, pharmacists, and patients told Amanda that this quick errand has morphed into something far more stressful. It's definitely not a, oh, shucky darn, you know, let's wait till next week or tomorrow. It's usually... I need this medication today. So that's the voice of Jamie Hoke. She's a licensed professional counselor who treats patients who are battling opioid addiction. Many of those patients have prescriptions for buprenorphine. It's commonly known by the brand name Suboxone. It treats addiction to opioids by partially working like an opioid and binding to those same receptors in the brain. That's what allows it to be so useful in treatment because it doesn't give you the euphoria associated with opiates, but it protects you from cravings and withdrawals. Dr. Sella Hatton Carter uses medicated assisted treatment for patients struggling with opioids. It's basically a combination of therapy and drugs like Suboxone. Studies show this method works. There's been a push to increase that method in the throes of this opioid crisis, and it's increasingly helping patients with their addiction recovery. So it's working. It's helping. What's the issue? This is where it gets tricky. This medication designed to treat addiction is itself also potentially addictive. It's a Schedule Three drug. That's why patients are having trouble getting it. We talked to 13 people who told us stories about being turned away from getting their Suboxone prescriptions filled in Wisconsin over the last year. None of them wanted to go on camera, but then we met Tina Kasten. I mean, as a drug addict, my brain is like, doo -doo 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 -doo. and you add anxiety and stress and worrisome when you go pick up your prescription. Tina lives in Manitowoc and says she's put every second of the last eight years into recovering from a heroin addiction. What finally stuck was that medicated assistant treatment we were talking about earlier. Therapy, meetings, and Suboxone. I didn't have the cravings all the time. It wasn't constantly on my mind like, okay, am I going to use? Am I not? Am I going to use? Don't do it. Oh, but you should. 
It's like the devil and the angel. And Sebastian kind of just tells them to be quiet and go home. But it sounds like getting the prescription was a lot easier than getting the medication. It was, and for a lot of different reasons, and this is happening with a lot of different patients. To curb opioid abuse, pharmacists will turn patients away if there are too many red flags. Things like cash payments, signs of doctor shopping, driving long distances to fill prescriptions. So you, know, you live here in the Milwaukee area your whole life and you think, well, why would it be hard? To, why would you have to go very far to get a prescription? There's a Walgreens on every corner. But in rural communities, I guess some people really do have to travel long distances to find a pharmacy. They do. And that's part of the problem. Wisconsin has more than 1,000 in-state pharmacies with active licenses. That sounds like a lot, but depending on where you live, the closest pharmacy may not actually be close. We mapped this out for our story, and we do have an image of that map on our website, which we're linking to this episode. And that really illustrates how far you might have to drive between a pharmacy. And so your options can be limited to start. On top of that, not every pharmacy stocks Suboxone, and the ones that do don't always have it available. By design, to prevent abuse, it's not easy to just switch your prescription to a different pharmacy, and you only get enough Suboxone to last you until you're supposed to refill that next prescription. You'll get turned away if you try to refill too early. So when someone like Tina has to wait five days for her medication. You have one day that you'll be okay because it's still in your system. But after that, I mean, you have sweats, headaches, you sneeze all the time, you're throwing up. That focus on the often painful withdrawal symptoms can lead to a strong urge to use again. There's that little voice, since you don't have your safety net, that little voice like, well, if you just do this, you'll feel better. You'll get your, you know, you'll get your homework done. You'll get your kids taken care of, you know. And that sometimes that voice is a scream. You mentioned talking to 13 people in your story. That's a lot of people. What examples did they give you of why they were turned away? There were several different ones. So Many of them cited the distance they were driving. Eight of them, eight out of the 13, said that driving a long distance was cited as a reason for them being turned away. Some of them, like Tina, were in a position where they went to pick up their prescription, and it wasn't anything they did. It was just the pharmacy didn't have it in stock that day. So they're told, come back tomorrow or come back in two days in Tina's case, waiting five days at one point, she was questioning whether she was in a physical condition to be able to drive to the pharmacy because her withdrawal symptoms were so bad. So for some medications, that might not be a big deal to wait. But if you are in a position where you have to wait and you can't easily get that prescription transferred to another pharmacy, what are you going to do? And that's where doctors, counselors, and pharmacists say, there are concerns here we have to address. This reminds me a lot, or it seems at least to have uh, some analogy to uh, heroin addiction and then methadone treatment. And for so many years, uh, especially back before heroin became what it has been more recently, but you think back to the sort of 70s uh, thoughts of, you know, the sort of street junkies with the track marks in their arms, methadone clinics became a very attractive thing for addicts because it was a place they could get their fix. The idea was to wean them. 
but they could still abuse a thing that was being given to wean. So here there's a concern that Suboxone is also being abused. And that's really what the pharmacies are trying to do with some of these limits, right? They're trying to keep people from traveling far and wide to get a drug they can abuse. Right. So they're saying, hey, what got us into this position was people being to able to get opioids too easily, right? Pharmacists, doctors were accused of really facilitating that issue. So we're kind of going in the other direction where they're saying, okay, we don't want to do this again with a substance that can be abused. I, I do want to point out it's not as easily abused as opioids. It's a Schedule Three drug, which means we're talking about a low or moderate risk of physical dependence, perhaps a high risk of psychological dependence, depending on the patient. But there still is that danger when people can use it for its non-intended purpose. The question is then, if it's too hard for people to access this medication, what happens to their opioid treatment? If we know that medicated-assisted treatment works and there's been this influx of it because it's being promoted, what do we do when it gets harder to get and those two things are happening at the same time? Are there other medications people could take instead of Suboxone if they couldn't get it, if it was too difficult for them? There are. The tough part with that is those medications aren't always as accessible. So Vivitrol, for example, that may be, a, it's a brand name of a drug you might be familiar with. That is something that does not have the same potential for abuse. However, in order to take it, you need to have detoxed for a set period of time, whereas Suboxone you can start taking right away. While someone is detoxing, that person could be in danger of relapsing. So that's not always accessible. It's also more expensive, especially for the uninsured and underinsured. The pill form of Suboxone is a lot more accessible from a cost standpoint for many of those people. So when we talk about access to the medication, there are different forms, whether you can get the prescription, whether you can actually afford that cost. So there are a lot of different aspects to I this. I would imagine that pharmacy chains, pharmacies individually, are under pressure to control things like this in the midst of this opioid crisis. And even if there is a lesser chance of abuse, if a drug can be abused and they're not doing something to control what they do for shoppers, then the pharmacies face potential criticism and maybe even lawsuits. Um, but cr criminal charges as well. If a pharmacist deliberately ignores risk factors, there is a potential you can be criminally charged here too. So there is a lot of responsibility on the pharmacist in this case. So what's the balance? Because it seems they're trying to set a limit, but is this is this distance thing maybe too arbitrary of a limit, especially in rural areas? Well, and so this is actually a good time to talk about how this story started, because it started as something else. The original tip came in that certain pharmacy chains had a 20 mile radius hard limit so that they were turning people away if they lived more than 20 miles away from the pharmacy, which in especially rural Wisconsin, that can be a big problem. And a lot of people have to drive long distances to their providers and then you kind of need to fill your prescription, your, your provider in certain cases. As we were going through and doing the research, we did not find evidence to back that up. It was hard to get pharmacies to talk to us. Most of them ignored our emails, ignored our calls, and we do have a more comprehensive list of that on our website. There were a few who outright declined to comment. CVS and Walgreens specifically gave us a little bit of information, not that much. 
They didn't say anything about a set distance policy. The idea is that the pharmacist is supposed to be able to use their discretion because there could be mitigating factors in that case. So in those cases, is, are they taking distance as like a factor among other factors to consider, but not a hard line? Yes. And that's why it's hard to track because there could be, it could be that you know that this person lives in the UP and has to drive to Wisconsin to get to her provider and then needs to fill the prescription in the same state as she's getting the treatment. So yeah, she's going to live really far away from the pharmacy and they might know that and they might have had a conversation with the doctor. It could be something totally different. Maybe that is a justified red flag and that person is trying to get access to medication that they're not supposed to be accessing or get access to more medication than they should be taking. And how do you make that call when the person's standing there in front of you in just a few minutes or even a few seconds? That's part of what the pharmacists are trained to do. But there is a lot of gray area in that case and room for discretion. But taking all of these things into consideration, obviously the patient's need for the medication and the pharmacy's concerns about people abusing it, what's the fix here? What kind of solutions are out there? It depends on who you talk to. The pharmacists say, at this point from our end, we don't know what else we can be doing. We're handling this on a case-by-case basis. The doctors are saying, all right, maybe pharmacies could have more clear policies. The problem is if you start getting into too much of a black and white, you do this, you do that, that could lead to more people getting denied their medication. Some pharmacists have told me they would like more clarity from the DEA, from the federal government, about what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do because the DEA is very careful to not be too restrictive for pharmacists, and they leave some areas purposefully vague. So pharmacists are saying, we don't know what to do in that case. It'd be nice to have more federal guidance. But the feds say they can't do that because every pharmacy is different. So a Walgreens, which is a massive chain, is naturally going to operate in a different way than Hyatt Pharmacy, which did go on camera with us, which is more local and you might know the individuals who are coming into your store on a more personal level, they're not going to be able to operate in the same way. So the pharmacies, you said, face this sort of risk if they allow abuse to occur and they don't really take yeah, If they measures. deliberately ignore warning they, signs. They, they ignore the warning signs. Do they face any pressure from the other end if people don't get the medication they need? And I ask that because if there's no real consequence for a pharmacy to deny someone who needs the medication, they're going to err on the side of caution. I mean, that sort of would be the natural response. Yes. And there really, there's no legal, there is no legal uh, consequence for saying you can't have your medication. Pharmacists, of course, they have a medical responsibility. They've want to help people. So I can't imagine any pharmacist would say I'm going to deny everyone. But it's also why some pharmacies do not stock Suboxone. They don't need to stock this drug. There is no requirement. And some flat out say, I don't want to deal with this issue. So we're just not going to stock it. So of the already limited pharmacy options that are available in parts of Wisconsin, that becomes even more limited. And we don't know how limited that is because you can't, it, it's very hard to track 
who is stalking Suboxone at any given point because it can change. You mentioned in your report that a lot of people talk to you off camera about this. Is that because of the stigma of addiction? That's a great question. I'm assuming. Yeah. It came down to the wire with this story. So this started in talking to doctors. Doctors would then give their patients who they knew who had had problems uh, getting their Suboxone prescriptions filled, they would give them my number. And then the patient could choose to call me. So I started getting calls and pretty much right up front, people would say, I don't want to go on camera. I don't want my name used. I don't want my voice recorded even because members of my family don't know that I'm struggling with this, or I don't want to ruin future job prospects. I don't want someone to potentially recognize me. There is still a lot of stigma and there's been more conversation in our society about addiction and mental health issues, but a lot of that stigma still hasn't changed. And I'm guessing when a pharmacy turns you away and says, no, it only adds to whatever maybe personal shame you may be feeling that I'm just trying to treat this addiction. Right. Because when you walk in with a Suboxone prescription, you're already saying right off the bat, I have struggled with addiction. You're already saying, hey, there may be a problem here. So you're dealing with that and then any associated shame, physical pain and emotional pain of being turned away. There are people, I should say, who are turned away for good reason. They probably should be turned away. And that was the difficult part in talking to each person because you're getting their perspective, but I can't then call up their pharmacist and have a conversation with them about that because there, of course, are medical privacy issues. You don't know issues. of those 13 how many might in fact actually be addicted doctor shoppers or pharmacy exactly. shoppers. Exactly. So I'm getting th- – so everything I do, I have to – walk that line of treating this person with compassion and not heightening any harm they might have felt, but at the same time, taking it with a grain of salt and realizing this may not be the entire story. Now, in some cases, when it's a patient a doctor has connected me to in a roundabout way, the doctor, in a sense, is vouching for the patient because they're saying, hey, I feel like this person was turned away for not a great reason let me give them your number. They'll see if they call you. But then those people that connected me with other people who would connect me with other people who didn't have the same verification. So that's how I ended up speaking to 13. I'm putting this story together. It's really hard to tell a story about people experiencing a problem when you don't hear from anyone who's experiencing the problem. So I was prepared to put together a story. I was worried it wouldn't have the right impact, but I had all the information that I needed. And then two days before the story airs, I end up interviewing Tina Kasten. And her interview was so powerful. She was so honest. I told her that it was an option to not use her name or not use her face. And she said, no, I want to go face up. I want people to know that I'm confident in what I'm saying. And I want to help get rid of this stigma of addiction. And if we're always hiding our faces, that's not going to help. And she laid out her story, her addiction struggles, what happened to her. She was one of the ones who a doctor had referred me to her and had vouched for her progress and what he felt was her being turned away in a way that was harmful. So I wasn't just rolling with here's what someone said and I'm going to take it and hold it up as the 100% truth. And she gave me some other information that helped me verify certain things she was saying. And that really 
in my opinion, made the emotional impact of the story and the ability to understand what was going on and how it affects people and how it affects families. Uh, it made it that much easier to really lay everything out in a way that could be understood and could be felt and could be thought through. I admire her strength in doing that because having that emotional element in your story makes it a lot more memorable and a lot more impactful to the viewer. And maybe it would spur some sort of change if change can be found. Do you see any follow-up stories here? There are too many follow-up stories, and that's it's a good thing and a bad thing. There are so many. We've talked about opioid addiction a lot over the last several years to the point where I think the way that we cover it has a danger of becoming cliche. No, yeah. really. I, I think I think for a lot of people, they hear opioid addiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard about that. Yeah, opioid crisis. We every every news station I think has had a series or a segment on it, and it started with just making people aware that this is happening. But now we're getting into an area where we're exploring some of the unintended consequences and things you may not have thought about. I think it will be interesting to see if pharmacies evolve, if the DEA ever changes the instruction that it gives to pharmacists and to pharmacies. I hope that down the road, more pharmacies will be willing to talk and share some of their policies and protocols. That was a a tough part of reporting this story. And we'll we'll see what happens. But I think as medicated-assisted treatment becomes more popular and we have more prescriptions and we don't always have the pharmacies to back that up, if something doesn't happen, if something doesn't give, whether it happens naturally or because of policy change, it's not going to get better. There's a whole separate thing to be explored about pharmacy deserts, areas in our state that don't even have very many pharmacies to begin with. And that doesn't just affect people who suffer from opioid addiction. That affects people who need medication of any kind. That's the dinner bell, which means it is time for our dinner party question. So this is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked as journalists at parties or events or whenever we're out and about. Here is the catch. We have no idea what the question is. There are several envelopes in front of us, and I am going to pick one at random. And here we go. Oh, this has nothing to do with news. Good. I like it. Let's get off topic here. Um, How did you meet your spouse slash significant other? Who wants to start with that one? Well, mine has something to do with news. Does it? So that, yeah, that kind of works out well. Um, So I had moved out to Toledo, Ohio for my first job in TV news, didn't know anyone there, had made the decision very quickly, and then I got there and kind of had a moment where I said, oh my gosh, what did I just do? But it was my first day in Toledo, and I was shadowing a reporter, and she said, hey, a bunch of us play bar trivia on Monday nights. We're down a team member uh, who's on vacation. Do you want to fill in for her and go? And I said, okay, I'm, I'm a big nerd. That sounds right up my alley. So I go. And at this point, I'm dating someone else. And I had actually turned down a job that would have been closer to where he was to take this job out in Ohio. One of the guys at Trivia was my husband, Steve. And I just remember he always, he knew all the sports questions. He knew all the geography questions. And anything that was about the state of Michigan, which is where he grew up, he loved. I was like, wow, this guy really loves 
Michigan State football and just the state of Michigan as a whole. Didn't really, he would play every week. It was like, oh, he seems like a nice guy. We never got to talking. Um, I think the only thing he said to me for the first few months was like, hi, and good answer. And then uh, several months later, I was single, and he found out I was single. And all of a sudden, he got more and more talkative, and our friends basically used trivia. Did, did he to know set right then that, by the way, you're going to like follow me around the country as my? <laughs> takes me to all I kinds don't of think he knew at that point, um, but he was he was very open to that though. And early on in our relationship, we had a lot of talks about that because I was pretty sure that Toledo wasn't where I wanted to settle down, and for him, it wasn't either. Although we did like our time in Toledo, we both knew that wasn't the forever place. So he was. He was pretty open-minded. So <laughs> Jenna's making a face right now. You're trying to decide how much College. College. Okay, okay. Oh, all right. Okay. Can that just be all nope. I say? Uh, I need more. Well, I started dating my husband when I was 19. So I was a freshman in college and he was a junior. And this was where? This was at the University of Wisconsin. Okay. And I met him a few times uh, before I actually got to know him a little better. I met him at a pregame do you know what a pregame is? We That's sure like do, Jenna. It's the party before, before yeah. the football game. Right. So if the game is like at 10 a.m., you're at the pregame. Like Very early. So there were Eight. cucumber sandwiches and delightful conversation. That is exactly how it went yeah. down. <laughs> yes. So I I talked to him and hung out with him at this pregame, and then he remembered me. So there was like an event, a Valentine's Day formal or something. Uh, a few months later, he remembered me, tracked down my number, called me up, and asked me to go. <laughs> To this. At the risk of making him sound like a stalker. <laughs> no, I mean, I'd run into him a few times and just said hi. Um, actually, funny story. I did a story recently about a couple who uh, had VHS tapes that they had sent off to be converted to DVD, and then they never got them back. Fun ending. We got the VHS tapes back. Um, but the man I interviewed uh, for this story called me up a few days later, and he said, I talked to my son who tells me that he went to college with you. And I thought, oh, God. Um, <laughs> and then he said, you know, he remembered being at this formal event because I was in I was on a sorority and my husband was in a fraternity. I like how originally I like how originally you tried to fancy it up like we were at an event. It we're was an a event. formal and then uh-huh. you're like a sorority and fraternity. So what you do when you're in a sorority is you have these parties sometimes with fraternities where they'll p- pair you up with a date for the night. It's not really a date, Um, but it's someone who will walk with you to the event and hang out with you for a while and introduce you to people. And then, you know, it's just someone. And then it's 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 like an icebreaker. Yeah. Yeah. Not free for all. (laughs) But anyway, this, it turns out his My job is to get to the truth, Jenna. His son, the the son of the man I'd interviewed for the story, um, was my date for a party with my husband's fraternity. And he had walked me over there and he remembered at that event, the man who became my husband walking up to him and saying, hey, I would like to meet that girl you're with. And he introduced me to him. Wow. Um, one of the first, I think it was so first the first time my husband remembers meeting me. Um, so he, the, the source I had interviewed, his son literally help. introduced wow. me And this was recently you found this that out, That was right? a few weeks ago. So it was a small world. But you know, it, college. Yeah. Speaking of it's college. Nothing to be ashamed of. Sorority? What sorority? I was a Gamma Phi Beta. Okay. And were there any sort of like chants or things you did or anything? What was, what was your like um, house? I don't know what you I call I think those. they're supposed to be secretive. Oh, are they? But uh, it was actually really they're fun. They're going to track Jenna down and find her if she reveals the sorority secret. No, the, f- the best part was the house. I mean, you lived there your sophomore year and it was kind of like a dorm, but just for girls. It was kind of like summer yeah. camp. And it was really fun living in the house because you had a cook who prepared your food and like there was a workout room and it was kind of like a bonding thing. 
Um, I believe that. That you met your now husband in that environment, a social environment, is not a surprise because the rest of us here at the station, we've all met (laughs) your husband and he's a very social guy. And I think sometimes he almost kind of by proxy wants to be a a reporter. No, but he's he's (laughs) very social. He wants to hang out with people. No, he hangs out with my coworkers without me. He once went to a holiday Christmas party when I had to work. (laughs) So he went to the Fox 6 party by himself. And was comfortable. He's totally comfortable. Yeah. We all love him. So, People yeah. like him better once they meet they him. They like him better, I don't blame but they them. like him also. Yes. Yeah, they like him sure. in addition to. Thank yeah. you, guys. But, yes, yeah, so you I met him in great college. great stories. I wish I could say mine was as sort of original and sort of like there was this great serendipitous moment. But uh, my, my wife and I met on Match. Um, and I had... Um, as is not really a, a big surprise. It's uh, well known to many people. I am divorced. Um, my uh, uh, first marriage ended about ten years ago, and I had dated off and on. And uh, and you know, you go through. I don't know if either of you used online dating, but you go through cycles of sort of frustration. It's like job interviews. Like you're going on multiple job interviews, and it's a lot of work. At first, you think this is going to be great. I'm going to meet all kinds of new people, and then it's just a lot of work. And at and, what stage of your life is this happening? This too? was all happening. I mean, we both had had children. Um, I had kids by this point because this was five years ago, six years ago. So you know, my kids were eleven and six at the time. Um, busy life, busy everything, mm-hmm. and so you're finding your moments to meet people. And then you go on a date and it's it's a letdown, it's disappointing. You're like, I can't put all this work into it. And so we were both at a point where we were ready to give up and say, I'm just going to take a break for a while. And uh, and she react, actually reached out to me initially. And when she did, I had started dating someone else. And I thought, well, I don't want to sort of, even though I know a lot of people now on dating websites, they'll date multiple people at once to see how it works. I didn't want to do that. So I said, you seem great. But I, I'm seeing someone, you know, if that doesn't work out, I'll, I'll get back in touch. And she thought, that's it. I'm done. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, I had reached back out. Hey, you know, I thought you were really great. Do you want to meet up for coffee? And we did. And I was late. Um, <laughs> and I had been actually with some friends out on a motorcycle ride to Holy Hill. And we were late getting back. So I was calling her. Hey, I'm running late. I'm sorry. I'll be there as soon as I can. And we met at the Collectivo at Bayshore. And uh, we had great conversation, really hit it off. Now, there's a funny story that I, I always tend to reveal a lot about myself, even if it's self-deprecating. So I will tell you that we had the, the coffee date. Then we thought, okay, let's go on like more of a date date. And we decided to meet up at Milwaukee Ale House uh, in Third Ward. And so we did. And she was already there when I got there. And they have those kind of high tables. They have these high, long tables. And, and it was dark. And I sat down across from her. So... We didn't really see a lot of each other other than just sort of sitting across and talking. And then we got done. We said goodbye. And I guess maybe she didn't get a good look at me beyond that. But she tells me that she called a a male friend of hers who had been sort of giving her advice through the dating process. And uh, and she said, he's really nice. Um... But he seems maybe kind of (laughs) short. And she goes, honestly, I couldn't really see. For all I know, I'm dating a little person. (laughs) And... And, and in some ways, maybe that's true. I had true. not heard this story. So um, <laughs> so we are married now. So apparently that was okay. That was okay. Uh, she her, got but, past that. Well, and the thing is. How she, tall are you? I'm five foot seven. And my dating profile said I was five eight because I was thought I was. <laughs> I thought I was. 
And and you thought you were five eight. I did. I thought I was like five seven and a quarter, and I thought you round up. It's fine. So like when you went to the doctor's office and they measured your height, you just did. Executive producer Sarah laughed harder at that than anything that you round up. Come on, you round up. It's just you're so good with very specific facts, and you went through part of your life thinking you were the wrong height. I I thought I was, and and you know maybe I maybe the you know my spine has compressed. I don't know. Maybe I've I've gotten shorter. So in any case, she's five seven. And and when we actually started dating, she said at one point, "You're not five eight. Yeah, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> no, I am." And she said, "No, you're not." And so I had to actually the next time I think I went to the doctor and they used the thing with it, and I was like, "Oh wow, actually five seven. Okay, so <laughs> I admit now I am five foot seven. And so she, she er, early it. on she called she called you on your your mistake, and she it did. Was still but good she married me anyway because you know. There's so much wonder in all of this five seven, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the look, I look, the awkward pause followed by the look on Jenna's face. I feel everything. like we've had multiple well, uh, awkward pauses. But no, but okay. we like your wife so much. She's always yes. a great sport she's, and all those she's a I, I will tell you when the things when we first started dating, um, I had uh, already accepted an invitation to one of our colleagues here at the station weddings, and um, so. I, I was a plus. I had a plus one for this mm-hmm. wedding, and now I didn't have a date because the other person I'd been dating it didn't work out. And I said, "Hey, I know we just met, but would you want to go to this wedding with me?" And she was like, "Sure." Big and event you, early on, and then you, it is. But then you think, you know, this is going to be awkward. She doesn't know anyone, and I've got to sort of babysit this new person because you don't want to leave them alone. Right. But I want to visit with all my friends. And we got to the wedding, and she was just, you know, social with everyone, and. Was like, oh, you're fine. You go talk to some other people. I'm okay. And I thought, well, this is this is great. Yeah. Because she she hit it off with everyone. People said how much they liked her. That always helps when you hear she the people around own. you, people you respect, say, oh, we like her too. And sure enough, things worked out, and we are married and have a house full of four children and two dogs. If you have a question you want the Open Record team to answer, let us know. Shoot us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. Thanks for listening to Open Record, and we'd also like to thank the people behind the scenes making this podcast happen, producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and executive producer who laughed at me a lot in this podcast, Sarah Smith. If you enjoy listening or laughing at Brian, please let us know. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check out Fox 6's other podcast, Definitely Milwaukee with Carl Deffenbaugh. If you want more Open Record, just head to our website, fox6now.com. 